Welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Cannon, heading up the British Army's Centre of Excellence for Leadership. In this episode, we talk to Lieutenant General Ian Cave, CB. General Cave commissioned into the Royal Welsh Fusiliers in 1988. He deployed to Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Berlin and Zimbabwe in the early years of his career, followed by two years in the USA. He commanded a rifle company as a major in the 22nd Cheshire Regiment, completing tours in Northern Ireland and Iraq, ahead of a role as an operational plans officer in the UK's permanent joint headquarters. On promotion, he served in the Ministry of Defence before assuming command of 1st Battalion, the Cheshire Regiment in 2006. And then as a colonel, he became Assistant Director Commitments at Headquarters Land Forces. Promotion to Brigadier followed, where he assumed command of the initial training group before spending 2013 in Kabul as Chief Plans in the headquarters of the International Security Assistance Force, prior to becoming Director Training at Army Headquarters. As a Major General, he assumed the appointment of Deputy Chief of Staff Plans at the Allied Joint Force Command in Naples, and returned to the UK as Chief of Staff of the Field Army. In June 2021, General Cave was promoted to Lieutenant General and appointed as the Commander of Home Command and as the Standing Joint Commander responsible for Defence's contribution to UK resilience operations. The latter role saw him take responsibility as the senior commander of the military support to Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, codenamed Operation London Bridge, and His Majesty King Charles III's coronation, Operation Golden Orb. General Cave is the Colonel Commandant of the Infantry, Colonel of the Mercian Regiment, Assistant Colonel Commandant of the Adjutant General Corps' Educational and Training Service, the Army's race champion and President of Army Cycling. He will assume the role of the UK's military representative to NATO and the EU in November 2023. General, thank you for coming to speak to the Centre for Army Leadership about your leadership experience. Yeah, hi Dean, good morning. We tend to start off with a very foundational question, which is, what does leadership mean to you? I think it's about mobilising the team that you have at your disposal and the resources you've got at hand, influencing to the end that's required. I think it's fundamentally a human endeavour. I think that lays a requirement on the leader to understand the capabilities of each and every individual in the team and to align them to those areas where they can demonstrate their strengths. What I've learned over time is that whilst we train at the beginning of our careers for leadership on operations, which you know, without getting too doctrinally pure on the definitions, I think at times becomes a little transactional. I think I've learnt in the staff and peacetime environment about a broader range of leadership tools. And the last point I'd make is that I think I've learnt as much about leadership in the last three or four years than I have in the previous 30. And that's largely about the different environments in which I've worked. Yeah, there's a lot of conversation we're having at the moment about leadership in barracks, as we would understand it, the sort of day-to-day leadership and how we make that better, certainly as far as better retention of individuals is concerned, that a very lowest level of leadership in day-to-day routine is something we might need to focus on more rather than the very hard-edged bit, which we've been proven is very good at, but has perhaps been overly focused on over the years. To to my mind, that's not an either or, it's it's an and. I wouldn't want to see us move in a direction where we lost the core capabilities that made us an army. 
But I do think that if we're not a little more savvy about applying leadership in a non-war fighting environment, then we have the potential to generate lots of irritants. We have conducted a fair amount of research on the generations. We spend a lot of time talking about Generation Z, i.e. those people who are just about to join. And people often ask, you know, are the generation who are joining now as good as the previous generation, which is a, it's an odd question. Mm-hmm. My answer to that is they're different and in some characteristics better. So in this context, if you asked yourself a question about what are the leadership preferences of Generation Z, the research talks about them having a preference towards democratic and a, an affiliate leader, which means they want to be part of the generation of the plan, not just told there's a plan, get on with it. If you are the sort of individual that says, well, that's really interesting, but you know they've joined my army, then they ain't going to stay long, are they? To my mind, the characteristics of leadership continue to evolve. And if we get stuck on what I learned in 1987 in this place, then I'm not going to be a very effective leader in 2023 yeah. because the preferences of those people who I have the privilege to lead have changed. Yeah, I came in perhaps with the perspective that the British Army's been doing leadership relatively well for 350 years or so, there can't be that much more for us to think about or write down. And I was completely wrong. There's the amount of leadership development that is still to take place and the changing context, which means we need to stay on the front foot with it. I I remember joining the the Royal Fusiliers in 88 and having a company commander who was technically superb. And we were in Northern Ireland at the time. I remember going on my first operation into South Armagh and digging in for three weeks, which is not what I was expecting. And the the way that the company had been laid out on the ground just outside Fork Hill was a a masterclass of defensive position sighting against a whole array of uh, potential threats. So there was no doubt in my mind that he was a superb tactician, but it was quite challenging understanding the intent because he wasn't a great communicator. And overlaying all of those characteristics of leadership, I think, are really important. You can't be really strong in one area and you know, not play in another. Yeah. Were there any things that happened in that very early formative experience mm-hmm. as a platoon commander that you recognised at the time, or you can look back and recognise now, were absolutely fundamental in how your leadership developed or your style emerged? I would put a caveat on the answer about the context. Yeah, we're talking 35 years ago. So some of it will still be relevant. I would think the majority, but some of it, you know, perhaps less so. But but I I remember leaving Sandhurst in April '88 and saying to my colour sergeant, who's a brilliant colour sergeant from the Black Watch, that I'm just about to go to Ireland. You know, it's all about counterinsurgency. I will never dig a trench again. All this sort of stuff. And I mentioned earlier on that within ten days I was living in one for quite a period of time. Formative experiences. Number one, when I was in that trench that I described earlier on, I was you know on stag sometime late in the day, and during a moment of weakness, I took out a bluey that I'd received from somebody at the time and was reading it. Bluey, one of the one of the hard copy letters. letters yeah. yeah. So half observing, half reading a bluey, and just as I was reading, I out of the corner of my eye, I saw a person walk across the front of the the arc. So that was one of the colour sergeants who'd just come back to the battalion from Sandhurst, who didn't say anything, but he saw. Six hours later, when I was doing the rounds of the platoon, one of my platoon positions was halfway up to the top of one of the hilltop OPs. So quite a quite a walk to get there. And up there, 
we had a, a brilliant corporal, uh, not short of confidence, physically imposing. I think he was a South Wales powerlifting champion or, or, or something. But he, he felt that he was in a very exposed position. So there, were, there was wire around his position, trip flares, and this sounds unbelievable, but live Claymore mines on the rear of his position. Mm-hmm. So somebody who I thought was you know, a super hard-as-nails corporal felt very exposed. He had heard about the Bluey because news travels fast <laughs> in infantry platoons. And uh, very respectfully, he said, um, sir, could I have a quiet word with you? So we got out of his trench. We walked to the back of the, his sort of defensive perimeter. He said, sir, when we found out that uh, Mr. Cave was coming to uh, four platoon, we were dead chuffed. But he then said, um, I've heard something today that's disappointed me. And I went, mm, here we go. He then told the story. He, he then reset my expectations and said, um, it's kind of looked at me reassuring, said, that's not going to happen again, though, sir, is it? It's a really interesting uh, anecdote about challenge. I remember two or three years ago at the Army's Executive Committee, the then Director of Personnel bought a paper on the Army's challenge culture. And I remember in any command appointment that I've had through my career that I have been challenged. I've probably been quite careful to set a culture whereby challenge is welcomed and accepted. And so I didn't really understand why there was a requirement to write a paper. In the last two or three years or so, I think I now know that as leaders, we have a pretty solemn responsibility to set the conditions whereby challenge is invited and very carefully handled. Yeah. I mean, this might be overstating, I don't know, but... um, there's quite a high level of moral courage required to challenge sometimes in our system because of a perception of a rank and a hierarchy. And perhaps all of us need to continue to work much harder on welcoming challenge. Yeah, I, I think I now found myself in a position where I'm almost directing people to challenge, which is a bit counterintuitive, but I think you get the point. But I think the majority of the stories we hear about difficulties with implementing a challenge culture is... Not that leaders aren't trying to, it's the actual mechanics of getting it to work. So saying, I really welcome a challenge culture isn't enough. You have to do that active management of it, the encouragement of it, the praise and the reward for people that do it in order to change the culture element of challenge culture. Well, so so I agree with that. So I think we all hear now much more, you know, that's a great challenge. Thank you very much for, you know, bringing that, you know, all this sort of, Verbal signals to create the psychological safety to challenge. But I, I still think we need to, to do more. You know, I, I've had a couple of examples recently where stuff that I've said, which I think has been a sort of soft opinion, has been played back as direction. So there is a responsibility on all of us to be very, very clear on communicating. But one of the things that people have said about me is continue to work hard to communicate. Because I suspect I'm not alone in thinking I communicate quite a lot. I'd like to think I communicate relatively effectively. The reality is that you cannot communicate enough because there will be somebody who's not able to maximise their contribution because they don't truly understand what it is you think you want. Yeah. Do you think that there are other ways you would describe yourself as a leader? Um. So, so I'd like to think I'm pretty collaborative, uh, pretty human, pretty accessible. I, I learned early on at school that I wasn't technically gifted. 
um, if there is something that I can do, it's working in a team. Uh, so collaborative human, I'd like to think that um, I, I know how to uh, set the conditions whereby every member of the team can do their best. I think we've talked earlier on about the different context. Um, a couple of people have said to me, you're quite difficult to please and you're quite difficult to read, which aren't tremendously positive characteristics. Um, I do remember the first time I was told I was quite difficult to please. My response was something like, well, if you got it right first time, it wouldn't have been a problem, <laughs> uh, which doesn't sit well with a sort of challenge culture thing, does it? But um, I, I mean, I, I think there is a relationship between being very clear-sighted, taking the business with which we're engaged very seriously because it is a very serious profession, but wearing those responsibilities in a way that doesn't become stifling. Yeah. And there's a relationship between character, empathy, humility, humor, but come the point of maximum focus, everybody's got to be pulling in that same direction. One of the things I've continued to learn is tremendous potential of humour. You know, it's, it's a brilliant tool to lighten the mood in difficult circumstances. I, I believe, and I could probably find an academic reference for this if, if you gave me time, that, you know, happy, contented teams are more productive teams. But there does come a point where, you know, humour is not appropriate to the circumstance. And have you had an example or two of that where you've misjudged I, I'm, I continue to work on, you know, when you walk into a room, you can sort of sense a context, can't you? And you can read the faces of people. My sort of default setting has been to walk into a room and, I don't know, try and lighten the mood. Um, I, I think what I've learned is that if, if you are an individual who is carrying a burden, whether that be a personal one or a professional one, or you've got a very knotty problem that you, you're just about to describe, then the last thing you want to do is, you know, break into a smile. Uh, so a couple of examples of that where you, where you just get the tone wrong. So I think it comes back to, you know, the empathy and the humility to understand that there's a context in every engagement you get involved in yeah. and not just having a, a single default setting that you replay again and again. Yeah. You've listed a few sort of character traits and values there is is there one standout character trait or value you think that's required of a great leader so so i'm going to go to humility and i, I would use a very broad definition and i would include in that definition uh context i would include the ability to uh, to empathize with circumstance and individual um it's a sort of living characteristic isn't it it's it's being alive being attuned and having the confidence in yourself as a leader to acknowledge that you're not often the person that's got the idea to win the day in the circumstance you're facing yeah it's about setting the conditions whereby people have the confidence to to share their ideas yeah picking up on the humility angle then are there moments or appointments periods in your career where you think or you were told that you failed in your leadership and how did that affect you or what did you do about it? Yeah, yeah. How long have you got? Um, so, I mean, the, the, I mean, the answer is yes. Um, 
you know, the really interesting question is, is, is why? So I, I remember a circumstance on a training exercise in Germany, you know, so a, a low threat environment. You know, the Rocky platoon was a fine-tuned machine, didn't really need a platoon commander. You know, two or three brilliant sergeants, lots of brilliant junior NCOs and some great uh, private soldiers. And there's a there's a peril of forgetting your part in the in the plan. So we stayed within boundaries. We identified enemy positions, bypassed, cracked on. We got to the limit of exploitation, which was absolutely clear in orders. Um, but I allowed myself to get carried away and push beyond that, on an assumption that there was going to be a next serial to the exercise. And I I will never forget the very uh, measured, disappointed parent dressing down I got from the commanding officer at the time who painted a picture of the broader context which I had allowed to be compromised by not controlling the platoon yeah um and it's it, it is those small anecdotes that ram home the doctrine and the lessons you're taught as you go through formal training evolutions but I think you've got to have the self-awareness to understand what happened why it happened and what you could have done better and I think as a young officer, a long time ago for me, you, you have to work really hard to balance the confidence of the people in your troop platoon who have way more experience than you've got with the broader context that you might have. I've mentioned earlier on the, you know, the great junior NCOs and senior NCOs I, I worked with very early on in my career. There was another occasion in Northern Ireland where we were the quick reaction force in the then RUC station in Corrie Square in Newry, late 80s, where we'd been crashed out as a QRF with Newry City maps in a couple of clapped out Land Rovers. And we were following um, a white Toyota Corolla. It was always a white Toyota Corolla back yeah. in the day, wasn't it? And it was going west out of Newry, up towards Kilkeel and Newcastle. And we had a helicopter in the overhead. And given the nature of the terrain, we would see glimpses of this car as it went past hedgerows and over bumps in the ground. But the helicopter had constant visual. So we got to a point where we were getting close to the edge of the map sheet. I knew we weren't going into the Republic, so that was pretty safe. But I didn't, you know, we were just about to come off the map sheet. And at that point, the helicopter came on the net and said, we're out of gas. We've got to go back to Vesperate for a refuel. So I stopped these two Land Rovers and I got out and the corporal behind me had been, he was the most vocal, most confident corporal in the platoon. And I said to him, just about to go off the map sheet, helicopter just about to go off station. We've got, you know, the, the bomb maker and sentry and the white to white corona just go, go across the hill. What do you think we should do? And he said to me, you're the platoon commander, sir. You decide. <laughs> and what did you do? Oh, we turned around. We turned around, we went back. There's definitely something in there about instincts. I, I think that uh, your instinct, which is tuned and continues to evolve through exposure to experience and training, becomes a, a very powerful tool. I think it's um, it's one of the things a king pays you for yeah. in this profession. So that instinct would have developed over your first 10 years in the army to the point where you're becoming a company commander in the Cheshires and then commanding the Cheshires, the battalion, uh, both times on operations in Iraq. Were there 
any notable differences between those two appointments that you could particularly note between that middle part of your career and how your leadership approach had developed? So in my view, being a company commander was the most personally and professionally rewarding command opportunity, which I know some people who are listening will go, you know, that sounds a bit odd, um, but you asked me a personal question. Why? I think at that level, you still have the fingertip feel and the personal relationship with each individual in the company. Yeah. So you know what drives them, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses, so you can exploit and mitigate respectively. And it fundamentally remains in that appointment a human endeavor. You also have sufficient exposure to battalion, battle group, brigade, divisional plan to fire those parts of your brain as well. So it's a kind of best of all worlds, in my view. You also have the tremendous ability to, to look after people and allow them to do their best work. I think as a CEO, you have a lot of that, but I, I would say that you are one step removed and therefore a little more remote. You, you perhaps have more responsibilities that draw you away from that sort of human to human interface. Yeah. Or perhaps you spend a small bit of time with the, with the stars. You spend a fair amount of time dealing with those people who are, you know, struggling with this, that and the other. Yeah. And you get pulled away into responsibilities outside of your unit. So, yeah, for those reasons, I would sort of pick OC and I would illustrate it with an example. So I, I took over from a, a, a brilliant officer as a company commander who's sadly no longer with us. But he he had empowered every individual in that subunit. And I mean, they, they didn't really need a company commander, right? Until they didn't know that they needed one. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and we spent a lot of time. Uh, so I, I did four months in Northern Ireland in East Tyrone as I came as a company commander from my staff job in permanent joint headquarters as a major. We then did a full training year on Salisbury Plain, Wainwright, and then Battis in Canada, and then came back and went on Octelic 4, I think in 2004. Iraq. So a, a very full period. We got to a point after I'd been in command for about a year where the commanding officer decided that in the process of optimizing the resources he had at hand in preparation to go to Iraq, he reshuffled. So I lost my company to IC and I got another company to IC and I thought, blimey. And the, the company to IC that came in um, was a hugely capable individual, but he was quite quirky. and if you didn't set the context and the conditions in which he could be set free to meet the command's intent, if you if you sought to control him too much, which is what his experience had been, yeah. then he, he couldn't optimise his contribution. If you set him free and just crossed your fingers, there was nobody better. Yeah. But I, you know, I was pretty resistant at the time. The benefit of hindsight, the commanding officer got a better output across the battalion. An individual was I don't know, partially rehabilitated without overstating it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was a win all round, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember having exactly the same experience myself from both angles, from having people taken from me as a company commander for the greater good of the battalion mm. and feeling hugely hard done by 
as far as the company was concerned. And then having to do it as a CEO, mm-hmm. um, but having had that experience, you recognise how difficult and painful it can be, mm-hmm. and that you have to explain what the greater good is. Mm-hmm. And generally speaking, people accept it and, and move on, but it can be really challenging. Well, so, so I think one of our great strengths as an organisation is that uh, you know, most of us are able to accept you know, and, and get on with it and make the best. And then more often than not, my experience has been you sort of look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, well, I now know why that was done. I understand the reasons. Yeah. It's quite difficult to see it when you're, when you're too close. Yeah. There's, there's something here about control and wanting to fully understand the context in which you're operating all the time and what the army trains us all to do, which is to be very comfortable in certainty and to have a very highly attuned model in our own minds to, to see, calculate and manage risk. Um, I mean, we could be here till midnight to talk about the circumstances where the particular tactical evolution that you were involved in changed. And what I think I've learned is that good teams that have been invested in and are well-led, and where you've set the conditions for followers to follow, you have huge resilience as circumstances change. And in in Iraq in 2004, we benefited from a, a really thorough training package, both conventional and specific to theatre. Such that when you got there, you felt ready for anything. And of course, the first thing you're invited to do is something that you've absolutely not prepared for. And therefore, you revert back to the comfort of battle procedure and drills, and you generate the deviation from the drill that's required for the specific mission. Um, I remember one particular operation, which was effectively a nighttime strike op with a a rifle company from the Cheshire Regiment, which I didn't necessarily feel that we were optimised for. Um, But you you very quickly realise that you confidently apply the drills that you do know, generate the TTPs to add on to the drills that you need to. And I would, in conversation with a couple of private soldiers from that company years after the event. It's a little surprising to, to be told that it was the third rehearsal that we'd done for that particular mission. You know, so one pretty untidy, second one daylight, a little bit better, and the third one after dark silent. Uh, this private soldier said um, it was after that third rehearsal that I knew that we could do this. It, it's kind of not what you expect, is it? No. It's what we all know, but it's yeah. not what you expect to hear. You're in a pub in Chester, you're three or four years after the event. But you know, he, he described the confidence and the steadiness that he and his mates got from understanding he was going to be left and right of them at every stage of that evolution. Yeah. I think that was the occasion where we drove through Basra City in a convoy of, I don't know, 12 Land Rovers, whatever it was. We went across the, there was a pontoon bridge that went across the centre of the city. And I think the second or third Land Rover rammed a car killed a donkey and as we were trundling up to to the objective i mean it sounded like fred carno's army it was pretty the opposite of silent so all of the things that could have unglued that operation were overcome by the simple battle procedure discipline for us yeah i had experience as a company commander as we were training to go to afghanistan in the final stages of our training on the exercise we found ourselves in a setup situation, which I complained afterwards to the training staff, was entirely unrealistic and uh, was far too complex and that situation would never come about. And therefore, it was a bit of a waste of time putting us under that sort of pressure. 
lo and behold, six weeks later, we are in almost that identical situation for real with an, another 10 layers of complexity added into it. And uh, I was humbled by the fact that we had been put through that and I was wrong actually to complain. It was much better to go do the, the train hard fight easy bit because the fighting wasn't easy at all. So you had to be trained even harder. But it was a useful lesson for me. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I think that our trainers could have the most lively imaginations possible and still fail to capture the, yeah. you know, the art of the possible out there. I mean, there was an occasion where we were something like Brigade Reserve Company number six and a ground holding company in, in the city as well. And I remember hearing on the Brigade net that a local civilian had stolen half a million dollars from the Brigade cash office or whatever it was. And we knew where it was. It was behind a house with a yellow door in in the High Near or wherever it was in Basra. And I thought, well, that's interesting. That, you know, that sounds quite interesting. But as Reserve Company number six, don't worry about that. Half an hour later or so, we were stood to and crashed out to go and do this mission. So I refer to the earlier uh, remarks about battle procedure and confidence. And we effectively left our base in a, in a snake and we peeled off multiples and platoons to go into every house that had a yellow door on the iron ear in a way that, you know, we'd never have been taught that. We'd have laughed at it if we'd have seen it on the film. But I found out afterwards that Brigade Ready Company Number 1 basically declined the mission because it's so far from anything they've been trained to do that, you know, it's a good on the commanders for saying it's not for us. Same happened Number 2. Third was a warrior company and the streets were too narrow. Fourth was, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, so it you know, just trundled down. I remember thinking, I'm not entirely sure how we're going to do that, but we'll give it a crack. But that came from the investment of training from the previous year and about half a tour of doing all sorts of really odd serials that just build confidence and resilience. General, you've got a huge breadth of responsibilities as Command Home Command and had huge depth of responsibilities in your previous role as Chief of Staff of the Field Army. Do you think there are particular leadership challenges one faces as a senior officer with those demands? And if so, have you consciously developed any particular skills or approaches to help you lead effectively when the remit is so wide and so demanding? Um, I think you have to develop an additional set of skills to work alongside the ones that you pick up earlier on in your career. I think you develop expertise by being very proximate to, to detail being across the whole span of your responsibilities in in a high level of detail. I think some characters have a preference to gain comfort in detail and therefore they're paralyzed if they can't see it. But I, I think you've got to have the ability to delegate and delegate hard and be comfortable delegating, but still retain the capacity to be able to cast your mind ahead identify opportunity, mitigate risk, set the conditions to mitigate risk, whilst also being there for your team as they want to pull you in to assist them as they as they triage and solve the issues of the day. So my job now on the home command side, I can genuinely say that twice a day, every day, I find out something which even after two and a half years I didn't know. And then because we're all we all have an element of the perfectionist about us. You then go through a very brief phase of beating yourself up for the, you know, why didn't you know? And the frustration comes from 
an idea that if you had have known, you might have been able to generate some links that could have built a more efficient engine or mitigated a risk or exploited an opportunity. Um, but I, you know, the, the most effective senior officers I've worked for have just had the ability to glide across a troublesome portfolio, not get overly excited, not get overly frustrated, and just continue to set the conditions that you know, their team can exploit. So it's almost, it's mission command on the, the staff rather than just on operations or training, as we would recognize it. Yes. Yeah. And there's also a, a careful calibration to ensure that you are, you're in the detail you need to be in at the time you need to be in it, but you don't get stuck in it because there is a, another bit of detail somewhere else uh, that you could usefully get into. It's about judging that. You know, there is a cultural and a personal thing here about if you've grown up in a system where a set of tools have worked, but you end up in a job where they don't have total applicability anymore, you have a responsibility as an individual to grow the skills required for the specific requirements of your current job. Unfortunately, we don't always capture that and articulate it on a job spec. Mm. So you do have to do a pretty robust bit of on-the-job learning when you go into a new job as as you understand the nature of that role the requirements of your particular appointment in it, and then get yourself the skills that you need to succeed. And in this particular job, with hugely capable two-star commands who don't require a three-star commander to get into the detail of their jobs, but they need to know that you are there and ready. And there's a sort of personal preference to want to get a little bit closer to their detail that you need to just pull yourself back from. Otherwise, you're missing something on a broader canvas. And it's not just Home Command, it's Standard Joint Command UK. It is helping the army as an institution continue to evolve. Um, so in, in my first year, you know, to be perfectly honest, there were a couple of occasions where I felt that I wasn't playing the part that I thought I should be playing mm-hmm. because you're still attuning yourself to the specific requirements of the job. So there's a balance to be struck, isn't there? It's uh, being there, but not being too there yeah and trust as a foundation in those relationships where there's no way you can keep a detailed handle if you did want to even on all of the aspects of the job and so you just have to trust that people are getting on with it and doing a good job so so there's there's definitely that but there's also the discipline to set the requirement and then the confidence to step away and trust that the team will deliver I, I worked for someone a long time ago who didn't really want to be overly specific about what was required in that particular job at that time because the context was pretty dynamic. And so whilst I could understand as a subordinate commander to that individual that the context was changing, it's not that helpful if there aren't pegs in the ground around which you can manoeuvre. Mm. At that point, there becomes too much ground to cover. Yeah. So I think you've... You've got to force yourself to think very carefully about what the operating parameters are, set the context in which you want the team to operate, and then support them in execution here through mission command. Yeah. I think if you leave it too broad, I'm not sure that works in the army. So that leads us really nicely on to that breadth of difference between detail and context, where as standing joint commander, you're in overall command of the military elements of both Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's funeral and His Majesty King Charles III's coronation. 
two highest profile state events in the UK for 70 years. As far as the funeral was concerned, can you talk us through how you felt in those moments when you found out that Her Late Majesty had passed and that you were going to have to lead that military contribution? So there had been a huge amount of battle procedure for that day. Um, All of my predecessors had very carefully developed the Op Bridge series of plans and Fourth Bridge, the funeral for the late Duke of Edinburgh, had given the system and the services a chance to see one of those plans in execution. So when we got to London Bridge, I had benefited from at least one full force rock drill and therefore felt comfortable that the mechanics of the plan and the 10-day sequence was understood. We had sent a number of assurance letters to the MOD, which articulated the risk as we saw it, largely about some of the very early serials, gun salutes on the first day, that sort of thing. Um, In the event, the fact that it became a national main effort and nobody wanted not to honour Her Late Majesty meant that everything ran on rails. But you don't know that until you get to the station, right? So I was in one of those positions that you wouldn't want to find yourself in when the news came. So I live in a little village uh, on Salisbury Plain. I was walking a small dog almost out of comms. And when I picked my phone up, I saw you know nine or ten missed calls. Um, I got comms, spoke to the General Officer Commanding London District who gave me the news. And then I spoke to my MA who told me that the Secretary of State wanted a VTC with all stakeholders, you know, in about seven minutes' time or whatever it was. Uh, there was then a, a bit of old man's PT as I dapped down the hill, span the laptop up. And it's really interesting, right? Because so the ops machinery of the MOD is, is an awesome machine when it gets going. Uh, but for something like bridge, I think the detail of the bridge plan sat in 20% of the head of a single SO2. Uh, who went from the routine to in front of the Secretary of State at 45 minutes notice and did a brilliant job at briefing the Secretary of State. What's really interesting is the Secretary of State didn't want to know the detail. He, he wanted to only have sufficient detail to allow him to go to the Cabinet Office 90 minutes later and say, the MOD is ready to play its part in the plan, the risks are. Mm-hmm. And I said something along the lines of, we've got a plan, we need to trust the plan, uh, all of the force elements are ready to execute, there are two risks. One was gun salute timings, the other was transport plan or, or, or something. As soon as that intervention had been made, all of the pressure went out of the room uh, because the commander that had been directed to execute demonstrated confidence in his headquarters and the team uh, and the people at the other end of the VTC immediately relaxed knowing that it was going to be fine. The really interesting thing about that is that all of us had only served you know, a single sovereign, the Queen, right? since yeah. before most of us were born. How, how, how do you acknowledge that fact and grieve um, and still get on with it? Yeah. I remember walking off that hill and crying. I don't know why. It just happened. I'm going to start again now if you're not careful. Mm. Um, but through that 10-day sequence, people did it at different times. Yeah. So it, it brings us back to the sort of human dynamics of running your responsibilities against one of the defining moments of our service, right? Yeah. It's really interesting. I suspect there was a, a point, whether it was in those few minutes after you'd taken that call or after the VTC, 
when you had a moment just to think or have a concern about there is a point at which I'm going to have to stand up in front of the headquarters, members of other government departments, etc., and give some direction, show that I'm the leader. In fact, by accepting a lot of the responsibility onto yourself and your team in that BTC, you've made the situation better for everyone else. But was there a moment where you thought, I'm going to have to say something of suitable significance, of suitable magnitude to reflect the situation and demonstrate a real seminal leadership moment? So, so I mean, there was a, an opportunity, but it, it was... I'm I'm not sure I'd describe it as a seminal leadership moment. Um, I mean, there was nobody who was involved in the execution of that who didn't understand that it was a seminal moment for the nation. I I, I remember the rock drill that we conducted, I think it was about 10 months before the event, where, where you talk about it becoming a seminal moment for the nation. You know, none of us know how we're going to feel when the Queen dies. But it is our responsibility to honour her life and service to our nation to execute this evolution to the highest possible standard. So you've got to separate the sort of two sides of your personality, right? One, you as an individual having served a sovereign for however many years, uh, but also wanting to honour her memory by delivering a spectacle. You know, a, sol- a solemn spectacle that's going to be seen by pretty much everyone in this nation and by lots of people around the world. And that resonated all the way through the force, I think, from those people who are going to be front and center pulling the state gun carriage from the Royal Navy, which, I mean, you, you, you will not meet a prouder bunch of people than those characters. You're yeah. awesome. To the characters from the Household Division, the representatives from all of the arms and services of the British Army uh, and, and the Royal Air Force as well. But they would all acknowledge that none of that would have happened without the planners, the leaders, the logisticians, the movers, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it really was a whole a whole team effort and focused focused events for those 10 days back in September last year. And did you have to apply yourself differently for the coronation, noting there was a much longer lead time? And actually, as, as far as leading an operation, would you rather do the shorter notice one which has got a lot of energy but also some very detailed plans behind it in place already or the the longer lead time one where the plan's developing over that time i would prefer to plan and rehearse and then live the frictions of execution in a way that makes you alive um there was still quite a lot of that in the coronation but you're absolutely right that d-day was known at about six months range, it was a a couple of days of detailed evolutions to include the rehearsals. It wasn't ten days, um, and so it had it, it brought slightly different demands. We of course have been through the lessons process for both of those. I think we've learned that we need to be a little bit more careful about building resilience into the C two structure that the various echelons. So for the ten day sequence of the funeral. There were people who were not sleeping for you know, 24, 36 hours or so, which everyone that's listening to this has done that a million times. But if you are in the center shot of a TV camera, you're at a, an event so seminal as that, then precision is absolutely key, isn't it? 
we had people who were conducting a live event, going to a planning serial for something that's happening three days afterwards, and then going straight to rehearsal for something that's going to happen tomorrow. So there were three or four periods in that 10-day sequence where you know, people were you know, pretty shattered. Ceremonial troops, but also the, uh, the logisticians enabling that effort as well. I'm not sure you're allowed to have a preference for a bridge over an orb, um, but I hope I've answered your question. Yeah. Looking now into some of your wider responsibilities, interests, and you have a close working relationship both for and with the Army Multicultural Network. How has that adjusted your leadership perspective and how much do you think that is different now to what you saw early in your career and, and where do you think it might go in the future as well? And one of the opportunities that came with this job was to become the Army Race Champion and generate that relationship with the Army Multicultural Network. So a network with a perishingly small full-time core, one person, I think, working in Army headquarters, uh, and then a, a management group of people who are picking up that responsibility as a secondary duty. But they do it out of a determination to make things better for the different communities within that network. But the more I think about it, the more you wish you could be involved in, and do. And you end up into a into a circumstance that most people listening to this will, will instantly recognise about how you spend your most precious resource, your time. And you quickly realise that what you may think is a pretty modest contribution has high impact by dint of the position you hold within the institution. So there have been two or three examples in my relationship with the Army Multicultural Network where the application of a relatively small amount of time and the ability to have conversations with people about issues which they're holding very tightly to them has added a, you know, a, a context and generated momentum on the way to a fix. And that doesn't necessarily always have to be the resolution of the issue. It can just be the opportunity to discuss it, get something off your chest. It, it comes back to some of the things we covered earlier on about how you continue to learn. Having the empathy to understand the perspective of others and has been brought to life through the Army Multicultural Network and all of the other networks, it's, it's a very powerful force in the context of the Army's teamwork plan. I'll, I'll illustrate with an example, and it's it's not a race example. It's a LBGT example, whereby an individual with a profile chose to get married to his husband in uniform. And one of the reasons was to, to demonstrate. And he describes the amount of correspondence he received from people serving in our army who were hugely warm to his decision to very publicly get married in uniform because in some way it gave them the permission to to do the same and it's small incremental demonstrations like that that allow us all to grow as individuals and to become more accepting of the different communities that we've all come from yeah and the army constantly evolves we spoke about Generation Z earlier on. And I would also refer back to what we discussed earlier on about the evolving nature of, of leadership. And if you are a leader who is not attuned 
to the different generations, the different hinterlands that all of our soldiers have come from, then in some way your ability to serve each and every one as an individual is somewhat compromised. Yeah. I learned very quickly from my friends in the Army Autocultural Network that they were less interested in taxonomy and more interested in genuine engagement. Yeah. I sometimes worry that because some of the taxonomy in some of these areas becomes somewhat impenetrable, it closes debate down, which I think is part of the brilliance of teamwork, whereby all of us can understand uh, the benefits associated with maximising the contribution of everyone on a team. Yeah. And for leaders, that perhaps is a, a barrier to them seeking to have those conversations because they don't want to get it wrong more than anything else. But realising well, that just having the conversation is where the value is. Yeah. I noticed also from your bio that you are president of Army Cycling. What are the things that keep you balanced in yourself and how important are they in you continuing to be able to deliver yourself, your best self as a leader? So fitness is important. And I'm not just talking about physical, mental as well, I think. And I think the way that the Army has recently articulated social fitness is really important as well, by which we mean the importance of friendship and networks and communicating. Yeah. So, so fitness, I think the nature of that changes. You know, every time I spin out now on my bike, I'm not going for a PB. It's it's uh, it's more about maintenance. But getting the heart and lungs working is is really important. I find it invigorating, and I feel that if I don't do meaningful fitness for three or four days, then I do find that my mood starts to drift south. It's it's amazing the impact. I like sleep so much so that when I left First Battalion, the Mercy Regiment, the CO, the RSM at the time put together a video montage of pretty much everywhere I'd slept in the two years <laughs> as a CO, from the back of aircraft to you know hammocks to whatever it was. Um, so I, I do see the value in being rested and then diet and and, and loads of water. There's a sort of wider point about us each understanding our own personal preferences and the conditions that need to be set for us to do our best work. So when I come to work and see a diary that's back to back to back to back, my heart sinks. If I see a diary that has a bit of white space in it so you can recalibrate, go and do some fears, whatever, then, I don't know, the day just feels better before it's even started. Yeah. We like to finish our podcast with some quickfire questions. General, so I'll start off with who do you think the best leader is that you've worked with and why? So General Dunford, who was Commander ISAF in 2013-14-15, went on to be the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs. Might be unfashionable to choose an American over a, over a Brit. Um, why? Uh, humble, huge capacity, very warm. And even under the most significant load, there was a character there who showed none of it. And this is the headquarters in Afghanistan that he's running at the time. So running the security assistance force in Kabul. I mean, it wasn't unusual to see him doing a Sandhurst-style changing parade, multiple orders of dress every day. You know, so whenever he went to go and see the president of Afghanistan, he would put his best dress uniform on. He would come back to the headquarters, get into his fatigues, jump onto an aircraft in his best dress uniform again to go to a repatriation ceremony in Jalalabad or wherever it was, come back in, do a planning update, uh, and then get on the on the phone to the President of the United States. 
you know, every day crushing relentless tempo. But whenever you spoke to him, he always had the time and the demeanor to take all of the tension out of any room and just get to the heart of what people wanted to tell him. And remembering, right, that was in a time where people were planning an Afghan transition on an assumption there would be an orderly Afghan transition. I mean, I can't imagine how many senior stakeholders he had to manage every day, all of whom believed they were in charge. And it was it was him, wasn't it? Uh, but whenever you went to go and see him to give him the detail of a you know Afghan elections planning or you know whatever it might have been, he would always sit the most junior major next to him at a table surrounded by generals, and he would fix this character with a sort of on a fatherly, grandfatherly, smiley face and draw the very best out of that individual mm. and treat them with care and kindness in a way that was just, you know, it's a, a brilliant education. Yeah. And if over time he believed that he could take what you were saying at face value, you got a slap on the back and a well done, see you next time. And he had this uncanny ability to, uh, to know if his guidance hadn't made it to your notebook. And he, his face would slightly change and he would say something like, well, okay, well, that's been a little bit complicated. He was kind. I'll give you an opportunity to read back the detail. Mm. And he would wave his fingers at you and you'd go, ah, he knows I didn't capture all of that. But it, you know, he, under the most incredible load, the most demanding circumstances, you know, great balance and, and great warmth. What's your most valuable leadership lesson and why? So I'm going to go back to a tactical example, and it'll be about the value of how and why we are taught to do things. And I would zero into battle procedure and the great benefit that rehearsing mentally and physically builds across the team, which then confers great resilience and execution. Mm -hmm. So it's a very simple thing, very time consuming. We all know that it uh, yields massive benefit and we need to make sure we protect the time to do it well. Yeah. Is there one book, film or podcast maybe that you've drawn most value from on leadership? So going slightly off the, off the grid. Um, so David Miller, Scottish cyclist, wrote a book five or six years ago called Racing Through the Dark. He was a Tour de France level cyclist. But at the peak of his powers, um, at a time when cycling was riven with drugs. And he describes in that book, at his core, not wanting to get pulled into that environment, but feeling it was a non-discretionary part of winning. And he describes that he didn't really think it was a choice if he wanted to win, and he wanted to win. But he writes a book with the benefit of hindsight. And he talks about the power of individual agency and what he wishes he had done or been able to do back in those days. And of course, now he is a prominent uh, television commentator on cycling. He's a great advocate for clean cycling. It's a really interesting story about having the moral courage to trust your instincts, do the right thing against an institutional grain that he didn't believe he had the agency to, to counter. Just to finish then, looking back, if you were able to send one short sentence back to Second Lieutenant Cave about 36 years or so ago, 
for advice on leadership, what would it be? So I would go to trust your instincts, trust the system that has trained you and allowed you to refine those instincts. And I would combine it with work really hard to understand those people around you whose instincts you can trust as well. It's a, it's a lesson I think we all learn. Whilst if we're lucky, we all live and work in high-performing teams. You have a responsibility to set the conditions so that they continue to be high-performing. But the sad reality sometimes is that there, you know, there are sometimes people in those teams who aren't quite at that kind of level. They might also be people who have quite loud voices or have a lot of rank. So you need to build the ability to work out where the best advice has come from and is likely to come from without becoming overly reliant on it. Yeah. General, it's been a, a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your candor and for your insights and reflections. Very best of luck when you move on to your new role in a few months' time. Great stuff. Thanks very much, Steve. General Cave spoke in this episode about how he viewed leadership development as a whole career endeavour. He spoke about how he has continued to learn about leadership throughout his time in the army and how those lessons have continued to impact on his leadership skills and style even now. He spoke about how important it was to be self-aware and to be able to adjust his leadership style according to the varied scenarios he has found himself in. General Cave also spoke about the strengths of young people in the army today and how he welcomes both the evolving expectations they have of their leaders and their modern approach on how they apply their own leadership skills and styles. He noted that a spirit of openness and the welcoming of challenge in a leadership approach is a great start point, but that it needed to be practiced and rewarded in a team for it to become truly effective. And he shared his view that humility was the preeminent trait in great leadership and that humour, of the right nature and at the right time, could go a long way to lifting a team under pressure. And in his description of how it felt to be leading the military contributions to Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II's funeral and His Majesty King Charles III's coronation, he fell back on the value of carrying such responsibility lightly and using the Army's values and standards as the foundation for getting things right when under pressure. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please share it with colleagues and friends and add your thoughts to the debate on social media. For more information on British Army leadership or to get in touch with the team, search for the Centre for Army Leadership website or find us on all your main social media platforms.